Okay, so. In 2008, Warner Brothers was sued by Batman. Not by the comic book character, by Batman Turkey, population 350,000 and home to Batman University, the soccer team Batman Petrolspor, and the Batman River. There's only one Batman in the world, claimed Batman Mayor Hussein Kalkin, who argued that the Dark Knight's use of the name was responsible for a local spike in suicides and unsolved murders. How did this happen? Well, in Turkey, a Batman is a unit of measurement equal to 16.96 pounds. That's about the weight of a frozen turkey. But it turns out there are tons of real-life Batmans. Take Australian settler John Batman, a pretty bad dude who murdered dozens of Aborigines in order to help found the city of Melbourne in the early 1800s. His neighbor called John Batman, quote, the vilest man I have ever known. But today, you can find 18 streets, two parks, one monument, a railway station, and a bridge, all named Batman in his honor. John Batman died of syphilis in 1839, exactly 100 years before Bob Kane created his Bruce Wayne. As for Mayor Hussein Kalkin, he dropped his plans for a lawsuit against Warner Brothers later that year when he was charged with stoking terrorism and sentenced to 10 months in prison. Hi, I am Amy Nicholson, Chief Film Critic for MTV News, and this is Skillset, the podcast where every guest is an expert, and every week they teach you and me a new way to look at the movies. This is our final episode of season one, and over the last seven episodes, we have learned so much together. We learned about tornadoes, and Elvis, and marathon running, and wigs, and poker, and punk rock, and cat trainers, and jazz. Thanks for listening while we here at MTV have been learning to put together this crazy show. We'll be back soon with a whole new school bus of smart people. But first, let's close out season one with the very first skill set interview I ever taped. And if it sounds strange on your headphones, that's because I was still learning how to use my fancy recorder. It's worth it though, I hope, because we are talking to my favorite actor, Michael Shannon, about his favorite band, The Talking Heads. Also up, magician David Copperfield waves his wand over Hollywood. And to start off the show, let's get sciency about the new Pixar cartoon Finding Dory and learn the truth about fish intelligence. That's all in this week's episode of Skillset. When Finding Nemo came out over a decade ago, it introduced us to a blue tang called Dory, who is the living stereotype of how we think about fish. She forgets everything in seconds. And growing up, I figured that was how my pet fish were too. But in the years since Finding Nemo, we've made huge leaps in how we study fish. And it turns out we've all been really, really wrong. Dr. Colin Brown of Macquarie University is one of the experts surfing this new science wave. He's the editor of a book called Fish Cognition and Behavior. So with the new sequel, Finding Dory in theaters, I called him up in Sydney, Australia to learn the truth about fish brains. Let's start by getting rid of the biggest myth. All right, so I'm here on the phone with Dr. Colum Brown talking to us all the way from Sydney, Australia, where he's a professor at Macquarie University. And Dr. Brown specializes in fish intelligence, so he is absolutely the perfect person to ask questions to about Finding Nemo and Finding Dory, starting with the big one. There has been this truism for as long as I can ever remember that a goldfish has a memory of about three seconds. It turns out that's not true. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, I don't know where that story came from, but I think it's more about making people feel happy about putting a goldfish in a tiny bowl. 
And if you go to different countries, the estimate of how long the goldfish memory is doesn't improve much. I think in the sort of Norwegian countries, it goes up to about 10 seconds. But that's absolutely not true. I mean, anybody who's kept goldfish will know that they remember all sorts of things like who's feeding them and where they're fed and what time even that they're fed. So they're pretty complicated. And people use goldfish actually as models for learning and memory. So they're obviously not as stupid as people make out. You models for learning and memory. You mean the same way that scientists use, say, lab rats? Because I've read that actually. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I've read that they've ta- not only taught goldfish to tell time; they've taught minnows and guppies how to do mazes. Yeah, well, that's pretty standard issue. The the learning and memory capability from a sort of spatial learning perspective is better than most animals, and just as good as any mammal or any monkey. So yeah, they're they're pretty good at that sort of thing. Yeah. It's, big labs primarily in spain i think the biggest lab that that does the spatial learning memory brain anatomy sort of stuff on goldfish wait so spain is the headquarters of goldfish intelligence (laughs) pretty much wow (laughs) don't tell the cats (laughs) (laughs) well what's the smartest thing you've heard of a fish doing well they do lots of very cool things um i often give talks about um learning and memory and and complex behavior to school kids and things like that and i have a list of things that um, people usually attribute to things like monkeys and things like having a good memory living in complex social groups they obviously recognize and preferentially interact with specific individuals so they can identify each other Um, They learn from one another and because they can learn not only by observing and interacting, but they can also learn cross-culturally too. So if you go from one generation to another, you can pass on information socially so they can form cultural traditions and you can generate that in the lab, but there's also nice evidence of that happening in the real world. They cooperate with each other. They have this thing called Machiavellian intelligence. So if you cheat in a situation where you're supposed to cooperate. Um, For example, you might be inspecting a predator or something like that. Then often there's some sort of punishment that follows. So there's a lot of complex social interactions and they even show um, tool use. So they're pretty complicated little animals. Wow. So the coral reef is basically just a street in New York with shoeshine boys remembering who doesn't tip them very well. Yeah, it's exactly the same kind of scenario. There's some really complicated social interactions going on, not just within species, but between all of the species as well. I mean, I'm curious why we've decided that fish are dumb. Is it just because as a species, they are so different from us? They live in a different environment. We have no way of communicating with them or really touching them the way that we do cats and dogs and monkeys. Is that why we think they're dumb? Is just a failure of imagination on our part to understand them in their world? Yeah, I think that's that's certainly part of it. There are so few people who actually witness fish firsthand in their natural environment. I mean, the, the proportion of people in the world who actively scuba dive, you know, fairly regularly, or even those who go snorkeling, it's such a small proportion of the population that really we have no appreciation of um, of how complicated fish lives are. And the other problem is, of course, I mean, they live in water, so you know, obviously we don't need to come into contact with them very often, but the physics underwater are completely different to the physics in, on land, and that's a, a fundamental shift in, in the way you need to think about animals and what they're capable of. So it's a bit like you know, going to Mars and expecting people to, to see people on Mars or something. It just wouldn't work because they're obviously, it's a completely different environment, completely alien to us. Does it frustrate you that movies like Finding Dory might reinforce this idea that fish are dumb? Not really. I mean, I actually, I use that film as a, as a positive lesson because the reason why 
Dory is such a funny character is it's obvious even to little kids that any animal that had a problem with short-term memory, as, as Dory does, wouldn't get by in the real world. I mean, that's why she's funny, right? Because she doesn't know where she is or where she's going. And presumably, you know, if she didn't have her friend, she'd long since be dead. <laughs> it's actually, that's kind of why she's a funny character, because it's obvious that, you know, she needs to have some kind of intelligence and, and learning and memory capability in order to get by. So I, I actually use that as a positive message. Well, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for talking to us all the way from Sydney, Australia, about fish intelligence. You have definitely made me smarter, and I will remember this, I promise. That's great. Thanks for uh, listening, and I hope everybody starts uh, thinking about fish slightly differently. That was Dr. Colin Brown of Macquarie University, making us all a little smarter about an animal who is definitely not so dumb. Magician David Copperfield can do anything. We're talking make the Statue of Liberty disappear, walk through the Great Wall of China, escape from Alcatraz, fly. And he has even more powers. He also directs. He directed 11 of his TV specials. And now with the new movie, Now You See Me Too, he's become a Hollywood producer. So I wanted to ask David Copperfield about the connection between magic and movies. It turns out to him, they're even closer than I thought. When he was growing up, his role models weren't magicians. They were making films. You know, my idols were people that made me dream. Uh, Frank Capra, who really uh, makes everyone emotional with his movies. Uh, Orson Welles, obviously. He's both a filmmaker and a magician. He actually hosted my first TV special, which is amazing to have that happen. So I got to know him quite a bit. And uh, uh, it was an amazing you know, learning experience for me. Magic was always an easy thing for me. Uh, you know, the Houdinis and the Kellers and Thurstons, sort of the filmmakers and the storytellers that, that made my magic uh, look the way it does. Uh, even George Méliès, if you saw the movie Hugo, it's about Méliès and a little bit of Robert Houdin in it. But Méliès uh, was a magician who ended up being one of the fathers of uh, modern cinema. You know, it's so interesting because I would imagine, you know, I also love live magic. And when you're in a room with a magician, there's that kind of energy that goes on where you as the magician are able to make eye contact. And it feels like there's magic in the movies, but is that part of magic? Like the, the magician in front of a crowd, is that hard to translate to film? I don't think so. I think, you know, there's an investment of uh, the audience has when they come into a movie theater, they just suspend their disbelief, maybe even more so than a magic show. Sometimes people come to the audience with their arms crossed, and that's my favorite audience. I try to <laughs> disarm them and really try to make them uh, not worry about how things work and more about uh, kind of the feeling that uh, you'd get in a movie, but live on stage. So it's an interesting challenge for me, and I've always... You know, I've always adored it, actually. <laughs> We're in an era right now where people have grown up, thanks to CGI, being able to see any sort of trickery. Amazing. You're, and and yeah. having a hard time appreciating what's real. I mean, is it harder? Like, when you do something like, say, produce Now You See Me, where the actors are learning magic, yeah. is it's, there that hurdle where you're thinking, are the is the audience going to know they're really doing this and it's not just tricked? You try not to cross a line of plausibility you know you try really hard to keep it within the, uh, the room for doubt it could have worked a certain way uh, if uh, the uh, you know it takes me 
three years or seven years to make a five-minute thing work. You know, that's a lot of time. So imagine that would be impossible to do in a movie. So what do you do? So they don't have, you know, 20 years to make the movie and perfect all the things to make everything a practical effect. So um, basically my job, one of my jobs is to kind of make sure that there is a kind of plausibility that it could be done, that it's possible to be done. There's an effect in um, the movie where it rains backwards. And that's a real effect. There's a real principle that's used and you could, actually buy it. I mean, this, uh, you can, can find the little machines that make it work. Uh, in the movie, we did it on a large scale. Now, did they have all of the equipment? Did they spend $10 million to make that equipment? No, they did it with CGI. But it was possible to do uh, in, in a real practical form. And uh, that was kind of the rules that, that the directors uh, kept. You know, you hear a lot that a lot of what a magician does is just like misdirection in terms of guiding the audience where to look. And I imagine you've directed your own specials. Is the camera sort of that eyeball where that's what you're using as misdirection? I think so. I mean, in a, in a way, you try not to cheat. You, I spend more time when I'm shooting television to make magic extremely fair, to have long, sweeping shots that don't cut away, where the audience subliminally will feel comfortable that they're seeing behind it, around it, that, you know, in the theater, you get to rock your body back and forth and kind of see depth behind things. And in a movie, if the camera stays still, it looks like the object is plastered against the background. You can't see the fact that it's 20 feet away from everything. So the fairness comes from how to move the camera, how to not to cut the camera, to really uh, give it a feeling of, of fairness. And, um, and that helps a lot. When you step into something like Now You See Me as a producer, for Now You See Me too, are you thinking like about your role also in protecting magic? And making sure that magic is represented properly? I think so. Um, I do. I really, obviously, is in my world. And we just went to Congress and met with a lot of the congressmen about magic, making magic an art form. And it's all about respect for the art, which it really deserves because magicians uh, were founded the cinema, helped create the movies, as, as you know today. Uh, magicians uh, uh, invented technology that you use in your home. There were, it was magic once, and now it's, now it's helping you. So, and we use magic in hospitals for therapy. You know, magic's truly an art form that uh, should be respected, and, and now you see me too. It does a great job of it. Do you think films like Harry Potter have been good for magic? I do. I do. I think, uh, you know, certainly um, people come to see my show. During all those Harry Potter films, they really are kind of, uh, the story is important, and the characters are important, and the fact that sensing wonder is, um, is what I do and what they do, and it's all part of the same world. Is there a magician you want to see get a proper biography about themselves on screen? Well, I think um, before Melies, who has been covered by uh, by the you know Hugo story, um, it's all about for me. It's 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 about uh, Robert Houdin, who was the father of modern magic, and uh, he was. Uh, I think he deserves a, a movie of his own. And um, there's, there's there's a few more coming out this year by interesting people who magic was involved with history and all that. So it's good. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was magician David Copperfield, now casting a spell over cinemas with Now You've Seen Me Too. Michael Shannon has been huge on my radar for 10 years. He's that tall, big-jawed actor who specializes in oddballs, villains, and antiheroes. He's played everyone from General Zod to Elvis. I first saw Shannon in Shotgun Stories, a wicked little indie film directed by Jeff Nichols. 
And in the decades since, even as he's become a pretty big movie star, Shannon and Nichols have kept collaborating. Their new movie is Midnight Special. It's their fifth and biggest film to date, a Spielbergian father-son sci-fi flick, with Shannon playing an escapee from a Texas religious cult who kidnaps his own boy for reasons that become clear when the windows start rattling. I love Shannon's on-screen weirdo magic. As I learned when I sat down with him in Austin, it seems like part of that is inspired by his favorite band, The Talking Heads. The first exposure I had to The Talking Heads was courtesy of M-T-V. I've heard of them. Really? Yes. The first exposure I ever had to The Talking Heads, I was watching MTV, which people used to do uh, for the music videos. And this music video came on for a song called And She Was. Have you ever seen this video? I have. Video for And She Was? Well, it just it just blew my mind. I mean, it literally, I was slack jawed after I saw it. I was like, what the hell was that? Not just the song itself, but the video is extraordinary. Well, yeah, I mean, describe it to people because that's one of their famous visual ones. Yeah, it's kind of like a stop motion animated, you know, cut out paper pastoral setting again of like a, a a nice house in a nice neighborhood and something going on with this girl disappearing floating away and all these weird collages and i think there's even like a picture of david you know like he's singing so as soon as i saw the video for Angie was i ran out and grabbed little creatures and i just it was all i listened to for a good long while was Little Creatures. I loved every song on it. I've, I've already confessed to you once that I'm not a talking heads expert. Yes. I've been boning up on them to yeah. talk to you about this. But for people listening who might also only know like Psycho Killer and some of the biggest hits, what is it about the talking heads that you like? Like how do you describe them to people? God, that's such a hard question to answer. They're so unique. The song Happy Day that they have on 77, it's it's kind of impossible to describe it. It doesn't even really necessarily seem like a rock song at first. It's, it's kind of like a gentle song about how I'm going to have a happy day. And uh, of course it's done with uh, a certain amount of irony you have to believe oh there, there must be some irony involved in this because nobody would no rock and roll band would just sing a song about having a happy day they're supposed to be singing songs about you know rock and roll party all night you know the yeah. kind of music you're into you know the crazy screaming you know who are these weird people singing a song about having a happy day but it's it's written in the most kind of unusual chord progression and it's got like tinkling, um, it sounds like maybe a xylophone or something. It almost has like a childlike quality to it. And yet, despite all that, it winds up feeling very kind of ominous and dark, which um, obviously is something I'm into, you know, ominous darkness. Yeah, I rewatched uh, Stop Making Sense. I've been thinking a lot about David Byrne straddling that line between music and theater. Yeah. You know how, like, Stop Making Sense, it opens, and you just see him alone on stage doing Psycho Killer. Right. And commanding a stage with nothing else. Nothing else is help. Right. I, I was watching that, and I was thinking, did you learn anything from that when you became a, th- a theater person yourself? Like, oh, yeah. About presence and about... 
No, there's no doubt that I'm influenced uh, by him. That's lurking in my um, my little soup pot upstairs. Um, he's 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 such a fantastic performer, and yet there's something I think a lot of times people feel something kind of cold or removed about him. Um, although I think in st by the end of Stop Making Sense, you see that melt away. I feel like, and he actually seems to be very warm. If you know. Yeah, he loses the jacket and he gets loses sweaty. The jacket and he and seems he's sweaty. Human. Yeah, yeah. He's like a yeah, he's like, Oh, that's he's a real real guy. Yeah, I'm thinking as you're describing it, like how he wasn't even just on stage trying to look sweaty, he like used clothes almost as a wall. Yeah. You know, he's in this giant suit and you can only see his little head. Right. And you have to concentrate on the head. Right. You know, the impenetrability of it is is what's drawing you into it. It's because you feel like you can't because it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's like the movie says. It's like you look at the, the band itself doesn't make any sense. It's like look at these nine people. <clears throat> They're all so different. There's so many different influences in the music. And when you hear the way the movie starts and the band's being put together, it goes from, you know, Psycho Killer to this very plaintive, uh, beautiful song, Heaven, and just David and Tina out there playing like they almost playing like they could be next to a campfire or something. And then all of a sudden, Chris France explodes on the stage, uh, you know, military background. And you can hear it in that snare part that he's playing on uh, Thank You For Sending Me An Angel. It's like, all of a sudden, there, uh, there's a military kid out there. So you've gone, like in three short songs, you can't, it's like, what's your foothold in this? Like, what, how do you identify it? Because people, you can't identify it. I think that's what I love about it. It's like, you can't, listen to those three songs and tell me what genre of music that is it's it there is no it is no genre of music it's it's the talk it's talking heads that's all you know but like what oh, what did a weirdo like david byrne mean to you i mean maybe i was having a, a similar experience the, the the notion he was exploring in some of his songs of you know here we are in our our pleasing homes and our pleasing neighborhoods having ostensibly a pleasant time and yet there's some sort of deep anxiety or unhappiness that seems to be breathing down our neck and what is it and why is it there and I feel like his music um, explores that um, yeah, that kind of malaise poking through the Reagan era yeah I mean it was it was you know it was just so interesting to hear somebody sing about these things not sing about like you know I met a girl last night or you know whatever, but like the the minutiae and the details of life. The the song itself is almost irrelevant. The fact that somebody, some musician, songwriter on earth wrote a song called "Don't Worry About the Government." And look, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, and listening to you know Masters of War and all the hard rain's gonna fall and the, you know the protest movement, the '60s. And then 10 years later, here's this guy saying, I'm going to write a song called Don't Worry About the Government. And it's going to be all about how efficient the government is and how I'm going to go work for the government and I'm going to have an office and it's everything's going to be work the way it's supposed to work and it, everything's going to be fine. And in a way, it's like the most effective protest song I've ever heard because because it makes you think, well... Is he serious? Like, is this serious? Or is he really just saying, 
this is all a disaster. It demands so much more of the person who's listening to it, as opposed to just sitting there and saying, here's how I really feel. I'm going to pour my heart out. The Talking Heads songs that I really, really love are ones that you really, you have to think about them. You don't just listen to them. You, you think about them. And you think, why why did he write this? And what it was, what's the point? Like, what, you know, it's their story. There's stories. Yeah, so I mean, it was, I think yeah. there's a reason the, the video collection is called Storytelling Giant. I mean, I don't know exactly. Maybe there was, I don't know, some book called Storytelling Giant or something they love, but. And his movie is true stories, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. True story, exactly. Yeah, true stories. It's always coming back to this notion of like, do you believe this? You know, the song pulled up on '77 about a guy coming home to the family home. You know, it's like, mommy, daddy, come and look at me now. I'm a big man in a great big town. Of course, that's what everybody, you know, they go to New York City. It's like, this is what I'm going to, I'm going to go there. I'm going to take them by the balls and run the, run the place. And that like happens to hardly anybody, you know, but here he is writing a song about it, you know. And then he does it, which he couldn't yeah. have known he was going to do it in 77. Yeah. And he does it in the most outlandish, oddball way. You know, it's like. He creates his own niche. Like there didn't need to be that niche. And then he made it. But I guess maybe that's where the similarity is. I mean, I would never, I find comparing myself to David Byrne to be quite foolish, but I think my approach is similar in that I knew that I was not going to like, just go out and get a really handsome headshot and like get my teeth whitened and, you know, learn how to seduce the camera or something. That was not my, you know, I was not going to go the traditional route. I had to, um, be myself and, and, and capitalize on what is perhaps eccentric or odd about myself. And maybe that's, you know, something that David Byrne, in a way, makes him sort of a hero, is that he says, yeah, I know I'm fucking weird as hell. I know I'm weird. And that's a good thing. And it's what makes me special. It's what makes it so you can't stop looking at me because I'm so freaking weird. Yeah, it's true. I, f- I feel like Bowie gets a lot of credit for that, but it's like the other DB who also... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. For another generation. Yeah, for another generation. And in a, in a very different way. I mean, David Bowie is a profoundly sexy human being. He always was. I mean, he and men, women, you know, across the line, you just... And I'm not... Look, I, I'm sure there's women that go nuts for David Bowie, but it's a different thing. It's not... He's not trading in, like... Don't, wouldn't you like to get me alone in a hotel room? It's it's more, and in a way, I admire that even more because it's not about, it's not about, because, yeah, you can get a lot of people's attention with sex, but but to get people's attention with the his mind, you know, it's, it's purely his mind, you know. And you don't necessarily want to dress like him or look like him. You just want to know what the hell he's talking about. And like, why are you, why are you writing these songs? And, you haven't really told me yet, like what you learned from him in terms of presence. There's something of um, something, the way he, like the look on his face during "Stop Making Sense." The look on his face, literally, when you see him performing anytime, it's so interesting. He seems so. He's got the most stoic kind of expression in his eyes. 
they're very clear. He's very clearly like not afraid. He's looking out, looking at the house or whatever. And he seems very relaxed. People always talk about how he seems, um, you know, high strung or off kilter or whatever. But to me, he seems very relaxed. He seems like he's doing exactly what he was put on earth to do. And he's not afraid of it at all, which I'm sure can't be. I'm sure he must get anxiety. I mean, any artist gets anxiety about stuff. I think. But it always, it just always seems like he's having such a good freaking time. I mean, that's one of the things during Stop Making Sense. It's like this guy is having a ball, it feels like to me. And it's infectious. And that's something I feel like I tell people all the time. It's like people like to watch other people have fun. And when they watch the other people having fun, they have fun watching that. Because a lot of people don't know how to have fun, really. And that's why so many of us spend so much of our lives like watching other people do stuff instead of actually doing stuff. That's kind of depressing. Well, I'm making a lot of money out of it, so it's not depressing to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm a winner. That was Michael Shannon, my favorite actor. Please do not rat me out to the rest of them. I am so glad he could close out this first season of Skillset. And I am so glad you could join us too. Skillset season two will start shortly. So if there's something you want to learn about the movies, tweet me. I'm at the Amy Nicholson. While you're on Twitter, you can follow at MTV Podcast to keep up with all of our shows. I wouldn't want you missing a single great episode of Speed Dial or The Stakes or North Mollywood. Hopefully, when we are back, you'll be able to subscribe to Skillset on its own iTunes feed, which will be cause for much celebration. We can time this, pop champagne, all do it together at once on the internet, or maybe this just makes me really, really happy. I don't know. We'll see. Either way, thank you again for listening, and we will meet again soon. This episode of Skillset was produced by Mukta Mohan, Michael Catano, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV Podcasts. Subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.